Section 2 of The Haunted Organist of Hurley-Burley and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Haunted Organist of Hurley-Burley and Other Stories by Rosa Mulholland. The Ghost at the Wrath many may disbelieve this story yet there are some still living who can remember hearing when children of the events which it details and of the strange sensation which their publicity excited the tale in its present form is copied by permission from a memoir written by the chief actor in the romance and preserved as a sort of heirloom in the family whom it concerns in the year i john thunder captain in the regiment having passed many years abroad following my profession received notice that i had become owner of certain properties which i had never thought to inherit i set off for my native land arrived in dublin found that my good fortune was real and at once began to look about me for old friends the first I met with, quite by accident, was curly-headed Frank O'Brien, who had been at school with me, though I was ten years his senior. He was curly-headed still, and handsome, as he had promised to be, but careworn and poor. During an evening spent at his chambers, I drew all his history from him. He was a briefless barrister. As a man he was not more talented than he had been as a boy. Hard work and anxiety had not brought him success, only broken his health and soured his mind. He was in love, and he could not marry. I soon knew all about Mary Leonard, his fiancée, whom he had met at a house in the country somewhere, in which she was governess. They had now been engaged for two years, she active and hopeful, he sick and despondent. From the letters of hers, which he showed me, I thought she was worth all the devotion he felt for her. I considered a good deal about what could be done for Frank, but I could not easily hit upon a plan to assist him. For ten chances, you have of helping a sharp man, you have not two for a dull one. In the meantime, my friend must regain his health, and a change of air and scene was necessary. I urged him to make a voyage of discovery to the wrath, an old house and park which had come into my possession as portion of my recently acquired estates i had never been to the place myself but it had once been the residence of sir luke thunder of general's memory and i knew that it was furnished and provided with a caretaker i pressed him to leave dublin at once and promised to follow him as soon as i found it possible to do so so frank went down to the wrath the place was two hundred miles away he was a stranger there and far from well when the first week came to an end and i had heard nothing from him i did not like the silence when a fortnight had passed and still not a word to say he was alive i felt decidedly uncomfortable and when the third week of his absence arrived at saturday without bringing me news I found myself whizzing through a part of the country I had never travelled before, in the same train in which I had seen Frank seated at our party. I reached D, and shouldering my knapsack, walked right into the heart of a lovely woody country. Following the directions I had received, I made my way to a lonely road on which I met not a soul and which seemed cut out of the heart of a forest 
so closely were the trees ranked on either side and so dense was the twilight made by the meeting and intertwining of the thick branches overhead in these shades i came upon a gate like a gate run to seed with tall thin brick pillars brandishing long grasses from their heads and spotted with a melancholy crust of creeping moss i jangled a cracked bell and an old man appeared from the thickets within stared at me then admitted me with a rusty key i breathed freely on hearing that my friend was well and to be seen i presented a letter to the old man having a fancy not to avow myself i found my friend walking up and down the alleys of a neglected orchard with the lichened branches tangled above his head and ripe apples rotting about his feet his hands were locked behind his back and his head was set on one side listening to the singing of a bird i never had seen him look so well yet there was a vacancy about his whole air which i did not like he did not seem at all surprised to see me asked had he really not written to me thought he had was so comfortable that he had forgotten everything else he fancied he had only been there about three days could not imagine how the time had passed he seemed to talk widely and this coupled with the unusual happy placidity of his manner confounded me the place knew him he told me confidentially the place belonged to him or should the birds sung him this the very trees bent before him as he passed the air whispered him that he had been long expected and should be poor no more wrestling with my judgment ere it might pronounce him mad i followed him indoors the wrath was no ordinary old country house the acres around it were so wildly overgrown that it was hard to decide which had been pleasure ground and where the thickets had begun the plan of the house was fine with mullioned windows and here and there a flack of stained glass flinging back the challenge of an angry sunset the vast rooms were full of a dusky glare from the sky as i strolled through them in the twilight the antique furniture had many a blood-red stain on the abrupt notches of its dark carvings the dusty mirrors flared back at the windows while the faded curtains produced streaks of uncertain color from the depths of their sullen foldings dinner was led for us in the library a long wainscoted room with an enormous fire roaring up the chimney sending a dancing light over the dingy titles of long unopened books the old man who had locked the gate for me served us at table and after drawing the dusty curtains and furnishing us with a plentiful supply of fuel and wine left us his clanking hobnailed shoes went echoing away in the distance over the unmatted tiles of the vacant hall till a door closed with a resounding clang very far away letting us know that we were shut up together for the night in this vast moldy oppressive old house i felt as if i could scarcely breathe in it i could not eat with my usual appetite the air of the place seemed heavy and tainted i grew sick and restless the very wine tasted badly as if it had been drugged i had a strange feeling that i had been in the house before and that something evil had happened to me in it yet such could not be the case 
what puzzled me most was that i should feel dissatisfied at seeing frank looking so well and eating so heartily a little time before i should have been glad to suffer something to see him as he looked now and yet not quite as he looked now there was a drowsy contentment about him which i could not understand he did not talk of his work or of any wish to return to it he seemed to have no thought of anything but the delight of hanging about that old house which had certainly cast a spell over him about midnight he seized a light and proposed retiring to our rooms i have such delightful dreams in this place he said he volunteered as we issued into the hall to take me upstairs and show me the upper regions of his paradise i said not tonight i felt a strange creeping sensation as i looked up the vast black staircase wide enough for a coach to drive down and at the heavy darkness bending over it like a curse while our lamps made drips of light down the first two or three gloomy steps our bedrooms were on the ground floor and stood opposite one another of a passage which led to a garden into mine frank conducted me and left me for his own the uneasy feeling which i have described did not go from me with him and i felt a restlessness amounting to pain when left alone in my chamber efforts had evidently been made to render the room habitable but there was a something antagonistic to sleep in every angle of its many crooked corners i kicked chairs out of their prim order along the wall and banged things about here and there finally thinking that a good night's rest was the best cure for an inexplicably disturbed frame of mind i undressed as quickly as possible and laid my head on my pillow under a canopy like the wings of a gigantic bird of prey willing above me ready to pounce but i could not sleep the wind grumbled in the chimney and the boughs swished in the garden outside and between these noises i thought i heard sounds coming from the interior of the old house where all should have been still as the dead down in their vaults i could not make out what these sounds were sometimes i thought i heard feet running about sometimes i could have sworn there were double knocks tremendous tantarararas at the great hall door sometimes i heard the clashing of dishes the echo of voices calling and the dragging about of furniture whilst i sat up in bed trying to account for these noises my door suddenly flew open a bright light streamed in from the passage without and a powdered servant in an elaborate livery of antique pattern stood holding the handle of the door in his hand and bowing low to me in the bed her ladyship my mistress desires your presence in the drawing-room sir this was announced in the measured tone of a well-trained domestic then with another bow he retired the door closed and i was left in the dark to determine whether i had not suddenly awakened from a tantalizing dream in spite of my very wakeful sensations i believe i should have endeavored to convince myself that i had been sleeping but that i perceived light shining under my door and through the keyhole from the passage I got up, lit my lamp, and dressed myself as hastily as I was able. I opened my door, and the passage down which 
a short time before i had almost groped my way with my lamp blinking in the dense foggy darkness was now illuminated with a light as bright as gas i walked along it quickly looking right and left to see whence the glare proceeded arriving at the hall i found it also blazing with light and filled with perfume groups of choice plants heavy with blossoms made it look like a garden the mosaic floor was strewn with costly mats soft colors and gilding shone from the walls and canvases that had been black gave forth faces of men and women looking brightly from their burnished frames servants were running about the dining-room and drawing-room doors were opening and shutting and as i looked through each i saw vistas of light and color the moving of brilliant crowds the waving of feathers and glancing of brilliant dresses and uniforms a festive hum reached me with a drowsy subdued sound as if i were listening with stuffed ears standing aside by an orange tree i gave up speculating on what this might be and concentrated all my powers on observations wheels were heard suddenly and a resounding knock banged at the door till it seemed that the very rooks in the chimneys must be startled out of their nests the door flew open a flaming of lanterns was seen outside and a dazzling lady came up the steps and swept into the hall when she held up her cloth of silver train i could see the diamonds that twinkled on her feet her bosom was covered with roses and there was a red light in her eyes like the reflection from a hundred glowing fires her black hair went coiling about her head and couched among the braids lay a jew not unlike the head of a snake she was flashing and glowing with gems and flowers her beauty and brilliance made me dizzy then came a faintness in the air as if her breath had poisoned it a whirl of storm came in with her and rushed up the staircase like a moan the plants shuddered and shed their blossoms and all the lights grew dim a moment then flared up again now the drawing-room door opened and a gentleman came out with a young girl leaning on his arm he was a fine-looking middle-aged gentleman with a mild countenance the girl was a slender creature with golden hair and a pale face she was dressed in pure white with a large ruby like a drop of blood at her throat they advanced together to receive the lady who had arrived the gentleman offered his arm to the stranger and the girl who was displaced for her fell back and walked behind them with a downcast air i felt irresistibly impelled to follow them and passed with them into the drawing-room never had i mixed in a finer gayer crowd the costumes were rich and of an old-fashioned pattern dancing was going forward with spirit minuets and country dances the stately gentleman was evidently the host and moved among the company introducing the magnificent lady right and left he led her to the head of the room presently and they mixed in the dance the arrogance of her manner and the fascination of her beauty were wonderful i cannot attempt to describe the strange manner in which i was in this company and yet not of it i seemed to view all i beheld through some fine and subtle medium 
I saw clearly, yet I felt that it was not with my ordinary naked eyesight. I can compare it to nothing but looking at a scene through a piece of smoked or colored glass. And just in the same way, as I have said before, all sounds seemed to reach me as if I were listening with ears imperfectly stuffed. No one present took any notice of me. I spoke to several, and they made no reply, did not even turn their eyes upon me, nor show in any way that they had heard me. I planted myself, straightened the way of a fine fellow in a general's uniform, but he, swerving neither to right nor left by an inch, kept on his way, as though I were a streak of mist, and left me behind him. Everyone I touched eluded me somehow. Substantial as they all looked, I could not contrive to lay my hand on anything that felt like solid flesh. Two or three times I felt a momentary relief from the oppressive sensations which distracted me, when I firmly believed I saw Frank's head at some distance among the crowd, now in one room and now in another, and again in the conservatory, which was hung with lamps and filled with people walking about among the flowers. But whenever I approached, he had vanished. At last I came upon him, sitting by himself on a couch, behind a curtain, watching the dancers. I laid my head upon his shoulder. Here was something substantial at last. He did not look up. He seemed aware, neither of my touch nor my speech. I looked in his staring eyes and found that he was sound asleep. I could not wake him. Curiosity would not let me remain by his side. I again mixed with the crowd and found the stately host still leading about the magnificent lady. No one seemed to notice that the golden-haired girl was sitting weeping in a corner. No one but the beauty in the silver train, who sometimes glanced at her contemptuously. Whilst I watched her distress, a group came between me and her, and I wandered into another room, where, as though I had turned from one picture of her to look at another, I beheld her dancing gaily in the full glee of Sir Roger de Coverley, with a fine-looking youth who was more plainly dressed than any other person in the room. Never was a better matched pair to look at. Down the middle they danced hand in hand, his face full of tenderness, hers beaming with joy, right and left bowing and curtsying, parted and meeting again, smiling and whispering. But over the heads of smaller women there were the fierce eyes of the magnificent beauty scowling at them. Then again the crowd shifted around me, and this scene was lost. For some time I could see no trace of the golden-haired girl in any of the rooms. I looked for her in vain, till at last I caught a glimpse of her standing smiling in a doorway with her finger lifted, beckoning. At whom? Could it be at me? Her eyes were fixed on mine. I hastened into the hall and caught sight of her white dress, passing up the wide black staircase, from which I had shrunk some hours earlier. I followed her, she keeping some steps in advance. It was intensely dark, but by the gleaming of her gown I was able to trace her flying figure. Where we went I knew not. Up how many stairs, down how many passages, till we arrived at a low-roofed large room, with a sloping roof and queer windows where there was a dim light, like the sanctuary light in a deserted church. Here 
when i entered the golden head was glimmering over something which i presently discerned to be a cradle wrapped round with white curtains and with a few fresh flowers fastened up on the hood of it as if to catch a baby's eye the fair sweet face looked up at me with a glow of pride in it smiling with happy dimples the white hands unfolded the curtains and stripped back the coverlet there went a rushing moan all round the weird room that seemed like a gust of wind forcing in through the crannies and shaking the jingling old windows in their sockets the cradle was an empty one the girl fell back with a look of horror on her pale face that i shall never forget then flinging her arms above her head she dashed from the room i followed her as fast as i was able but the wild white figure was too swift for me i had lost her before i reached the bottom of the staircase i searched for her first in one room then in another neither could i see her foe as i already believed to be the lady of the silver train at length i found myself in a small ante-room where a lamp was expiring on the table a window was open close by it the golden-haired girl was lying sobbing in a chair while the magnificent lady was bending over her as if soothingly and offering her something to drink in a goblet the moon was rising behind the two figures the shuddering light of the lamp was flickering over the girl's bright head the rich embossing of the golden cup the lady's silver robes and i thought the jeweled eyes of the serpent looked out from her bending head as i watched the girl raised her face and drank then suddenly dashed the goblet away while a cry such as i never heard but once and shiver to remember rose to the very roof of the old house and the clear sharp word poisoned rang and reverberated from hall and chamber in a thousand echoes like the clash of a peal of bells the girl dashed herself from the open window leaving the cry clamoring behind her i heard the violent opening of doors and running of feet but i waited for nothing more maddened by what i had witnessed i would have followed the murderess but she glided unhurt from under my vain blow i sprang from the window after the wretched white figure i saw it flying on before me with a speed i could not overtake i ran till i was dizzy i called like a madman and heard the owls croaking back to me the moon grew huge and bright the trees grew out before it like the bushy heads of giants the river lay keen and shining like a long unsheathed sword counting for deadly work among the rushes the white figure shimmered and vanished glittered brightly on before me shimmered and vanished again shimmered staggered fell and disappeared in the river of what she was phantom or reality i thought not at the moment she had the semblance of a human being going to destruction and i had a frenzied impulse to save her i rushed forward with one last effort struck my foot against the roof of a tree and was dashed to the ground i remember a crash momentary pain and confusion then nothing more when my sense returned 
the red clouds of the dawn were shining in the river beside me i arose to my feet and found that though much bruised i was otherwise unhurt i busied my mind in recalling the strange circumstances which had brought me to that place in the dead of the night the recollection of all i had witnessed was vividly present to my mind i took my way slowly to the house almost expecting to see the marks of wheels and other indications of last night's revel but the rank grass that covered the gravel was uncrushed not a blade disturbed not a stone displaced i shook one of the drawing-room windows till i shook off the old rusty hasp inside flung up the creaking sash and entered where were the brilliant draperies and carpets the soft gilding the vases teeming with flowers the thousand sweet odors of the night before not a trace of them no nor even a ragged cobweb swept away nor a stiff chair moved an inch from its melancholy place nor the face of a mirror relieved from one speck of its obscuring dust coming back into the open air i met the old man from the gate walking up one of the weedy paths he eyed me meaningly from head to foot but i gave him good morrow cheerfully you see i am poking about early i said a faither said he and ye look like a man that had been poking about all night how so said i why ye see sir said he i'm used it and i can read it in your face like print some sees one thing and some another and some only feels and hears the poor gentleman inside he says nothing but he has beautiful dreams and for the lord's sake sir take him out of this for i've seen him wandering about like a ghost himself in the heart of the night and him that sound sleeping that i couldn't wake him at breakfast i said nothing to frank of my strange adventures he had rested what he said and boasted of his enchanting dreams i asked him to describe them when he grew perplexed and annoyed he remembered nothing but that his spirit had been delightfully entertained whilst his body reposed i now felt a curiosity to go through the old house and was not surprised on pushing open a door at the end of a remote moldy passage to enter the identical chamber into which i had followed the pale-faced girl when she beckoned me out of the drawing-room there were the low brooding roof and slanting walls the short wide latticed windows to which the noonday sun was trying to pierce through a forest of leaves the hangings rotting with age shook like dreary banners at the opening of the door and there in the middle of the room was the cradle only the curtains that had been white were blackened with dirt and laced and overlaced with cobwebs i parted the curtains bringing down a shower of dust upon the floor and saw lying upon the pillow within a child's tiny shoe and a toy i did not describe the rest of the house it was vast and rambling and as far as furniture and decorations were concerned the wreck of grandeur having a strange subject for meditation i walked alone in the orchard that evening this orchard sloped towards the river i have mentioned before the trees were old and stunted and the branches tangled overhead the ripe apples were rolling in the long bleached grass a row of taller trees sycamores and chestnuts 
struggled along by the river's edge ferns and tall weeds grew round and amongst them and between their trunks and behind the rifts in the foliage the water was seen to flow walking up and down one of the paths i alternately faced these trees and turned my back upon them once when coming towards them i chanced to lift my glance started drew my hands across my eyes looked again and finally stood still gazing in much astonishment i saw distinctly the figure of a lady standing by one of the trees bending low towards the grass her face was a little turned away her dress a bluish white her mantle a dun brown color she held a spade in her hand and her foot was upon it as if she were in the act of digging i gazed at her for some time vainly trying to guess at whom she might be then i advanced towards her as i approached the outlines of her figure broke up and disappeared and i found that she was only an illusion presented to me by the curious accidental grouping of the lines of two trees which had shaped the space between them into the semblance of the form i have described a patch of the flowing water had been her robe a piece of russet moorland her cloak the spade was an awkward young shoot slanting up from the root of one of the trees i stepped back and tried to piece her out again bit by bit but could not succeed that night i did not feel at all inclined to return to my dismal chamber and lie awaiting such another summons as i had once received when frank bade me good-night i heaped fresh coals on the fire took down from the shelves a book from which i lifted the dust in layers with my penknife and dragging an armchair close to the hearth tried to make myself as comfortable as might be i am a strong robust man very unimaginative and little troubled with affections of the nerves but i confess that my feelings were not enviable sitting thus alone in that queer old house with last night's strange pantomime still vividly present to my memory in spite of my efforts at coolness i was excited by the prospect of what yet might be in store for me before morning but these feelings passed away as the night wore on and i nodded asleep over my book i was startled by the sound of a brisk light step walking overhead wild awake at once i sat up and listened the ceiling was low but i could not call to mind what room it was that lay above the library in which i sat presently i heard the same step upon the stairs and the loud sharp rustling of a silk dress sweeping against the banisters the step paused at the library door and then there was silence i got up and with all the courage i could summon seized the light and opened the door but there was nothing in the hall but the usual heavy darkness and damp moldy air i confess i felt more uncomfortable at that moment than i had done at any time during the preceding night all the visions that had then appeared to me had produced nothing like the horror of thus feeling a supernatural presence which my eyes were not permitted to behold i returned to the library and passed the night there next day i thought for the room above it in which i had heard the footsteps but could discover no entrance to any such room its windows indeed i counted from the outside though they were so overgrown with ivy i could hardly discern them 
but in the interior of the house i could find no door to the chamber i asked frank about it but he knew and cared nothing on the subject i asked the old man at the lodge and he shook his head Lodge, he said don't ask about that room the door's built up and flesh and blood have no concern with it it was her own room whose own i asked old lady thunders and whistler that's her grave what do you mean i said are you out of your mind he laughed queerly drew nearer and lowered his voice nobody has asked about the room these years but yourself he said nobody misses it going over the house my grandfather was an old retainer of the thunder family my father was in the service too and i was born myself before the old lady died yon was her room and she left her eternal curse on her family if so be they didn't leave her coffin there she wasn't going under the ground to the worms so there it was left and they built up the door god love ye sir and don't go near it i wouldn't have told you only i know ye've seen plenty about already and ye have the look o one that be ferreting things out saving your presence he looked at me knowingly but i gave him no information only thanked him for putting me on my guard i could scarcely credit what he told me about the room but my curiosity was excited regarding it i made up my mind that day to try and induce frank to quit the place on the morrow i felt more and more convinced that the atmosphere was not healthful for his mind whatever it might be for his body the sooner we left the spot the better for us both but the remaining night which i had to pass there i resolved on devoting to the exploring of the wallowed-up chamber what impelled me to this resolve i do not know the undertaking was not a pleasant one and i should hardly have ventured on it had i been forced to remain much longer at rest but i knew there was little chance of sleep for me in that house and i thought i might as well go and seek for my adventures as sit waiting for them to come for me as i had done the night before i felt a relish for my enterprise and expected the night with satisfaction i did not say anything of my intention either to frank or the old man at the lodge i did not want to make a fuss and have my doings talked of all over the country i may as well mention here that again on this evening when walking in the orchard i saw the figure of the lady digging between the trees and again i saw that this figure was an elusive appearance that the water was her gown and the moorland her cloak and the willow in the distance her tresses as soon as the night was pretty far advanced i placed a ladder against the window which was least covered over with the ivy and mounted it having provided myself with a dark lantern the moon rose full behind some trees that stood like a black bank against the horizon and glimmered on the panes as i ripped away branches and leaves with a knife and shook the old crazy casement open the sashes were rotten and the fastenings easily gave way i placed my lantern on a bench within and was soon standing beside it in the chamber the air was insufferably close and moldy and i flung the window open to the widest and beat the bowering ivy still further back from about it so as to let the fresh air of heaven blow into the place i then took my lantern in hand and began to look about me the room was vast and double a velvet curtain hung between me and an inner chamber the darkness was thick and irksome 
and the scanty light of my lantern only tantalized me my eyes fell on some tall spectral-looking candelabra furnished with wax candles which though black with age still bore the marks of having been guttered by a draught that had blown on them fifty years ago i lighted these they burned up with a ghastly flickering and the apartment with its fittings was revealed to me this later had been splendid in the days of their freshness the appointments of the rest of the house were mean in comparison the ceiling was painted with fine allegorical figures also spaces of the walls between the dim mirrors and the sumptuous hangings of crimson velvet with their tarnished golden tassels and fringes the carpet still felt luxurious to the tread and the dust could not altogether obliterate the elaborate fancy of its flowery design there were gorgeous cabinets laden with curiosities wonderfully carved chairs rare vases and antique glasses of every description under some of which lay little heaps of dust which had once no doubt been blooming flowers there was a table laden with books of poetry and science drawings and drawing materials which showed that the occupant of the room had been a person of mind there was also a writing table scattered over with yellow papers and a work table at a window on which lay reels a thimble and a piece of what had once been white muslin but was now saffron color soon with gold thread a rusty needle sticking in it this and a pen lying on the inkstand the paper knife between the leaves of a book the loose sketches shaken out by the side of a portfolio and the ashes of a fire on the wild mildewed hearth place all suggested that the owner of this retreat had been snatched from it without warning and that whoever had thought proper to build up the doors had also thought proper to touch nothing that had belonged to her having surveyed all these things i entered the inner room which was a bedroom the furniture of this was in keeping with that of the other chamber i saw dimly a bed enveloped in lace and a dressing-table fancifully garnished and draped here i spied more candelabra and going forward to set the lights burning i stumbled against something i turned the blaze of my lantern on this something and started with a sudden thrill of horror it was a large stone coffin i own that i felt very strangely for the next few minutes when i had recovered the shock i set the wax candles burning and took a better survey on this old burial place a wardrobe stood open and i saw dresses hanging within a gown lay upon a chair and if just thrown off and a pair of dainty slippers were beside it the toilet table looked as if only used yesterday judging by the litter that covered it hair brushes lying this way and that way essence bottles with the stoppers out paint pots uncovered a ring here a wreath of artificial flowers there and in front of all that coffin the tarnished cupids that bore the mirror between their hands smirking down at it with a grim complacency on the corner of this table was a small golden salver holding a plate of some black moderate food an antique decanter filled with wine a glass and a fire with some thick black liquid uncorked 
I felt weak and sick with the atmosphere of the place, and I seized the decanter, wiped the dust from it with my handkerchief, tasted, found that the wine was good, and drank a moderate draught. Immediately it was swallowed. I felt a horrid giddiness and sunk upon the coffin. A raging pain was in my head and a sense of suffocation in my chest. After a few intolerable moments I felt better, but the heavy air pressed on me stiflingly, and I rushed from this inner room into the larger and outer chamber. Here a blast of cool air revived me, and I saw that the place was changed. A dozen other candelabra, besides those I had lighted, were flaming around the walls. The hearth was all ruddy with a blazing fire. Everything that had been dim was bright. The luster had returned to the gilding. The flowers bloomed in the vases. A lady was sitting before the hearth in a low armchair. Her light loose gown swept about her on the carpet. Her black hair fell round her to her knees, and into it her hands were thrust as she leaned her forehead upon them, and stared between them into the fire. I had scarcely time to observe her attitude when she turned her head quickly towards me, and I recognized the handsome face of the magnificent lady who had played such a sinister part in the strange scenes that had been enacted before me two nights ago. I saw something dark looming behind her chair, but I thought it was only her shadow thrown backward by the firelight. She arose and came to meet me, and I recoiled from her. There was something horridly fixed and hollow in her gaze, and filmy in the stirring of her garments. The shadow as she moved grew more firm and distinct in outline, and followed her like a servant where she went. She crossed half of the room, then beckoned me, and sat down at the writing table. The shadow waited beside her, adjusted her paper, placed the ink bottle near her, and the pen between her fingers. I felt impelled to approach her and to take my place at her left shoulder, so as to be able to see what she might write. The shadow stood motionless at her other hand. As I became accustomed to the shadow's presence, he grew more visibly loathsome and hideous. He was quite distinct from the lady, and moved independently of her with long, ugly limbs. She hesitated about beginning to write, and he made a wild gesture with his arm, which brought her hand quickly to the paper, and her pen began to move at once. I needed not to bend and scrutinize in order to read. Every word as it was formed flashed before me like a meteor. I am the spirit of Madeline, Lady Thunder, who lived and died in this house and whose coffin stands in yonder room among the vanities in which I delighted. I am constrained to make my confession to you, John Thunder, who are the present owner of the states of your family. Here the hand trembled and stopped writing, but the shadow made a threatening gesture, and the hand fluttered on. I was beautiful, poor, and ambitious, and when I entered this house first on the night of a ball given by Sir Luke Sander, I determined to become its mistress. His daughter, Mary Thunder, was the only obstacle in my way. She divined my intention and stood between me and her father. She was a gentle, delicate girl and no match for me. I pushed her aside and became Lady Thunder. After that I hated her and made her dread me. I had gained the object of my ambition, but I was jealous 
of the influence possessed by her over her father and i revenged myself by crushing the joy out of her young life in this i defeated my own purpose she eloped with a young man who was devoted to her though poor and beneath her in station her father was indignant at first and my malice was satisfied but as time passed on i had no children and she had a son soon after whose birth her husband died then her father took her back to his heart and the boy was his idol and heir again the hand stopped at writing the ghostly head drooped and the whole figure was convulsed but the shadow gesticulated fiercely and cowering under its menace the wretched spirit went on i caused the child to be stolen away i thought i had done it cunningly but she tracked the crime home to me she came and accused me of it and in the desperation of my terror at discovery i gave her poison to drink she rushed from me and from the house in frenzy and in her mortal anguish fell in the river people thought she had gone mad from grief for her child and committed suicide i only knew the horrible truth sorrow brought an illness upon her father of which he died up to the day of his death he had search made for the child believing that it was alive and must be found he willed all his property to it his rightful heir and to its heirs forever i buried the deeds under a tree in the orchard and forged a will in which all was bequeathed to me during my lifetime i enjoyed my state and grandeur till the day of my death which came upon me miserably and after that my husband's possessions went to a distant relation of his family nothing more was heard of the fate of the child who was stolen but he lived and married and his daughter now toils for her bread his daughter who is the rightful owner of all that is said to belong to you john thunder i tell you this that you may devote yourself to the task of discovering this wronged girl and giving up to her that which you are unlawfully possessed of under the thirteenth tree standing on the brink of the river at the foot of the orchard you will find buried the genuine will of sir luke thunder when you have found and read it do justice as you value your soul in order that you may know the grandchild of mary thunder when you find her you shall behold her in a vision the last words grew dim before me the lights faded away and all the place was in darkness except one spot on the opposite wall on this spot the light glimmered softly and against the brightness the outlines of a figure appeared faintly at first but growing firm and distinct became filled in and rounded at last to the perfect semblance of life the figure was that of a young girl in a plain black dress with a bright happy face and pale gold hair softly banded on her fair forehead she might have been the twin sister of the pale-faced girl whom i had seen bending over the cradle two nights ago but her healthier gladder and prettier sister when i had gazed on her some moments the vision faded away as it had come the last vestige of the brightness died out upon the wall and i found myself once more in total darkness stunned for a time by the sudden changes i stood watching for the return of the lights and figures but in vain 
by and by my eyes grew accustomed to the obscurity and i saw the sky glimmering behind the little window which i had left open i could soon discern the writing-table beside me and possessed myself of the slips of loose paper which lay upon it i then made my way to the window the first streaks of dawn were in the sky as i descended my ladder and i thanked god that i breathed the fresh morning air once more and heard the cheering sound of the cocks crowing all thought of acting immediately upon last night's strange revelations almost all memory of them was for the time banished from my mind by the unexpected trouble of the next few days that morning i found an alarming change in frank feeling sure that he was going to be ill i engaged a lodging in a cottage in the neighborhood whither we removed before nightfall leaving the accursed wrath behind us before midnight he was in the delirium of a raging fever i thought it right to let his poor little fiance know his state and wrote to her trying to alarm her no more than was necessary on the evening of the third day after my letter went i was sitting by frank's bedside when an unusual bustle outside aroused my curiosity and going into the cottage kitchen i saw a figure standing in the firelight which seemed a third appearance of that vision of the pale-faced golden-haired girl which was now thoroughly imprinted on my memory a third with all the woe of the first and all the beauty of the second but this was a living breathing apparition she was throwing off her bonnet and shawl and stood there at home in a moment in her plain black dress i drew my hand across my eyes to make sure that they did not deceive me i had beheld so many supernatural visions lately that it seemed as though i could scarcely believe in the reality of anything till i had touched it oh sir said the visitor i am mary leonard and are you poor frank's friend oh sir we are all the world to one another and i could not let him die without coming to see him and here the poor little traveller burst into tears i cheered her as well as i could telling her that frank would soon i trusted be out of all danger she told me that she had thrown up her situation in order to come and nurse him i said we had got a more experienced nurse than she could be and then i gave her to the care of our landlady a motherly countrywoman after that i went back to frank's bedside nor left it for long till he was convalescent the fever had swept away all that strangeness in his manner which had afflicted me and he was quite himself again there was a joyful meeting of the lovers the more i saw of mary leonard's bright face the more thoroughly was i convinced that she was the living counterpart of the vision i had seen in the burial chamber i made inquiries as to her birth and her father's history and found that she was indeed the grandchild of that merry thunder whose history had been so strangely related to me and the rightful heiress of all those properties which for a few months only had been mine under the tree in the orchard the thirteenth and that by which i had seen the lady digging were found the buried deeds which had been described to me i made an immediate transfer of property whereupon some others who thought they had a chance of being my heirs disputed the matter with me and went to law thus the affair has gained publicity and become a nine days wonder many things have been in my favor however the proving of mary's birth and of sir luke's will 
the identification of Lady Thunder's handwriting on the slips of paper which I had brought from the burial chamber, also other matters which a search in that chamber brought to light. I triumphed, and I now go abroad, leaving Frank and his Mary, made happy by the possession of what could only have been a burden to me. So the MSN's major thunder fell in battle a few years after the adventure it relates. Frank O'Brien's grandchildren hear of him with gratitude and awe. The wrath has been long since totally dismantled and left to go to ruin. End of section 2